uh, now there is prof, uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs that is online. So I would like to uh, thank you a lot, uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, uh, that is the Director of the Center of Sustainable Development, Columbia University and President of uh, UN SDSN. Now, uh, a short introduction. So I, uh, the, the panel will be composed by Professor Sachs. After we will have also Professor Claudia Kempfert, Professor indeed of the Department Energy Transportation Environment at the German Institute of Economic Research. After we will have uh, the Sir uh, Paolo Separava, CEO of Separava uh, Automotive Group, and also Roberto de Miranda, Executive Committee Member, Ori Martin, that are here and after I, we will manage the table in order to prepare also the second part. Uh, as I uh, explained to the first panelist group, uh, we have structured the following. So I have uh, some uh, questions uh, that are common to all the speakers. Uh, now I read these uh, sentences, these questions, and after a specific question for all the, all the panelists. So the common question are the following. Uh, do you think is it possible to, uh, to reach the net zero emission target by 2050? The second is, uh, which might be the main obstacle preventing the achievement of a target? Do you have uh, any solution to suggest for overcoming the above mentioned obstacles? If you are concerned about several obstacle categories, which would you address first and how? The third is uh, related to the panel. So I, as I explained at the beginning, we have this mixed panel between businesses, research, uh, and the firms, so and the enterprises. So uh, considering your role in the, uh, your institution, what are you doing to achieve uh, these goals and what would you recommend others to do? To others are exactly research institution and business. So now, uh, before leaving the floor to uh, Professor Sachs, uh, a short introduction also added questions. So Professor Sachs, as uh, uh, I laughed, I'll leave you the floor. So uh, we uh, we are in University of Brescia. Professor Sachs uh, went to University of Brescia in 2018 uh, with also Professor uh, Castelli-Vetistia. And so we have also, even the uh, Laura Nolis Causa, we have also a book now that is written by... Uh, uh, our rector, also Professor Mignacci, that is here, and uh, so other pixels also the honoris causa. Uh, we know that is uh, in our top is very, very important, so your role, so you're one of the most important um, economists in the world about this topic, about also uh, sustainability. In particular, in 2018, uh, Professor Sack's advice was uh, crucial in the fight against hyperinflation, and the renegotiation of the foreign debt uh, of several Latin American countries. In 1989, he was in Poland as a, um, an advisor of Solidarność to the, to the first post-communist governments. I've taken this sentence exactly from the, uh, uh, the, 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 the book of Laudatio of uh, Professor Miniaci, and also to contextualize the, 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 the role and also the questions. He developed the path of transition from a transcentralized economy to a market economy in, in ways that uh, would later inspire his actions in Russia. In 1984, he used the game theory to show that in the international world, uh, uh, interconnected world, the cooperation among countries brings to higher welfare level than uh, the mere competition dynamics. In uh, 1990, he stressed how higher levels on, on inequality make the adoption of populist policy more likely. Are all topics that are in, uh, also in these days and more important, also cooperation related to 
the goal number is 17, also related to this table. Now I arrive to the question. What about this new period of inflation after inflation? Are you closer to a, are you closer to a new stagflation? Which are the main differences between that period and today? What about the path of transition from centralized market economy after the Soviet Union crumble? Uh, did everything go well? Uh, there was something that you think of it that could change the, after the period. Uh, last point, and after we give you the floor. Uh, in the recent interview about uh, Sri Lanka and the potential crisis of other developing countries, uh, you said, uh, so uh, this is a quotation of what you said about in this interview, uh, that uh, to reverse this trend, uh, there is no other way but uh, an urgent uh, expansion of financing, uh, financing by all international financial institutions for the monetary fund to the European Investment Bank. This is not enough. Uh, the strongest of the public development institutions need to be involved. In, I'm thinking, you're thinking of it, uh, especially of a AFD in France and KFW in Germany, to possibility. Will you please expand this point, but this is very important and also is uh, related to what is happening in this state, unfortunately. Uh, also because Germany has an uh, energy dependence problem and face risk uh, of uh, uniper, uniper energy default. Okay, thank you very much for your time. It's, very, it's an honor for us. It's a very pleasure to have you here in our panel and our lead the floor. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks to you and good to see you and uh, thanks to uh, all friends. Uh, the situation uh, in the world is uh, is dramatic. The uh, heat wave in Europe reminds us what we're dealing with and how rapidly uh, the environmental crisis is getting worse. But at the same time, the geopolitics uh, are the worst that they've been in 30 years and arguably even uh, much longer than that. In order to achieve net zero by 2050. We need uh, technologies that can do the job. We need global cooperation. We need plans uh, at a regional level, such as Europe or other regions of the world. And we need a financing strategy to bring those technologies to bear. We're not achieving almost any of that right now. Uh, Europe uh, to its credit, has a European Green Deal, which is extremely important, and it's the, the most articulated strategy of any region in the world. But even Europe does not have a plan to achieve the European Green Deal. Uh, much too much is left at the individual country level. The uh, nature of the European-wide energy system is what really is at stake. We need an interconnected grid of clean energy, both uh, electrons and hydrogen. Uh, Europe needs supply chains to be able to produce the hardware that underpins the zero carbon economy. And all of that has to be accomplished by mid-century or sooner, given the dire rate of global warming. Now, just to mention that if you multiply that and say, well, uh, if that's Europe's situation, uh, what about Africa? What about Latin America? What about ASEAN? What about East Asia? Uh, the basic point is that every region would need such a comprehensive framework. 
an integrated scenario, access to the physical technologies and infrastructure, global supply chains for energy security, and financing. Well, all of this is feasible because we have the global resources to do it, but none of it <clears throat> happens on a market basis alone. None of it happens on a national basis alone. Uh, none of it uh, is sufficiently solved by even uh, instruments such as uh, emissions trading or carbon taxes, though they can play a helpful role in a broader context. None of it is solved by a hardening geopolitical situation. And you can see in Italy with the fall of the Draghi government today, uh, we, we can't even have national political stability in the current context. European governments will fall one after another in the current political crisis. Biden will lose one or both houses of Congress in November. Uh, the political instability, uh, Boris Johnson, clown that he is, uh, was uh, uh, finally uh, thrown out in part because of the worsening economic crisis. And we don't have, therefore, a political base to do this. So I'd like to start uh, with a couple basic points. The war in Ukraine must end. It is not going to end, dear friends, by a defeat of Vladimir Putin. No matter how many times this absurdity is said by Baerbach uh, or by Biden or by others, the war will end when NATO acknowledges it will not enlarge to Ukraine and when there is a negotiated outcome. If we continue on the path that we're on, that Ukraine gets more and more arms and it's going to defeat Putin and no compromise and we're going to push Russia out of uh, Crimea, et cetera, et cetera, either Ukraine will disappear from the map or we will go to World War III or all of the above. And we will not have an energy transition. So if we want to have an energy transition, if we want to have a stable world, we need to end the war first and not on NATO's terms. People should understand this war came because the United States insisted on NATO enlargement to the East, completely irresponsible and completely contrary to the commitments that were made to Gorbachev and to Yeltsin. And I was there in those days. These were clear commitments. No NATO enlargement to the East, certainly not to Ukraine and to Georgia. And so our own recklessness is at the heart now of unprecedented instability. We need to stop the war through negotiation. We need to stop the rhetoric of defeating Putin, defeating Russia, but rather stopping the NATO enlargement, preserving Ukraine, having Russia leave. That's what's been on the table, but NATO and especially the U.S. hasn't accepted it. But then, unfortunately, Europe lost its voice. Draghi, Macron, Schultz all lost their voice. They couldn't say what was right for Europe. 
And so they went along with the U.S., and here we are. So that's my first point. Climate and geopolitics are interrelated. This goes back to a question you asked, by the way, what went wrong in the 1990s? I can tell you, I know in detail what went wrong. And what went wrong was that the United States and Europe were ready to support Central Europe, but they were not ready to help Russia. And more than that, Russia became an enemy again because U.S. neoconservatives wanted it that way. They wanted U.S. primacy. They didn't want to help Russia get back off the ground after uh, a devastating economic and political crisis. So the result was to push Russia against the wall, and Putin finally reacted. There's a lot more that can be said about this, but it's our failure to cooperate and to be wise that has been at the root of this crisis. We face a similar challenge right now with China. Is it really our purpose to have a geopolitical conflict with China when we need cooperation with China on so many fronts, when we want to avoid a war with China over Taiwan, when we need cooperation on climate change? China, I remind you, is the world's largest emitter, 28% of greenhouse gas emissions, and we need cooperation. And so why did we just have a NATO meeting that invited Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, as if NATO is now going to form in East Asia, which is the U.S. crazy idea. So please, in Europe, take care that we need peace cooperation. And then I can turn to the economics, because if the geopolitics is done right, then we're left with the huge challenge. How in 28 years do we get to net zero? And let me put that in uh, several different parts. First, you need the goal. Europe has the goal. Second, you need a plan. Not 27 plans, but a European plan. An interconnected grid as I said, of zero carbon electricity and of hydrogen for the non-electrified parts of the energy system. Then you need financing. Well, there's no part of the world that's closer to achieving all of that than Europe. This is what the European Green Deal can and should accomplish. It's very close. I think that the economists can really help on this to show what is a good plan, what is an interconnected system in Europe, EIB, European Commission budget. These are all important instruments. So then I would emphasize this is a world challenge. I would like Europe to use its diplomacy with ASEAN, with China, with the African Union, with CELAC, the countries of, uh, uh, of Latin America and the Caribbean, to say you need green deals too. That means goals, plans, and investment strategies. And the final point that I would make is that while Europe can finance its transition, the developing countries cannot finance their transition 
on the current available financing terms. Euro bond markets are too unstable, too small, too illiquid. Basel II prevents banks from playing a major role. So developing countries do not have access to long-term, low-interest financing. And that's where the multilateral development banks and the public development banks are essential. And I'm working with the UN leadership to advocate a massive scaling up of the public development banking and multilateral development banking system in future years to provide 30-year-plus lending at interest rates that are roughly no more than 200 basis points higher than AAA bond rates as the basis for what is required, a massive, massive increase of investing. So Europe's challenge is twofold. One, achieving this within Europe. And second, as the world's clearest thinking region, to help other regions to achieve this. But my main hope, Europe cannot think clearly in the middle of this crisis right now. This crisis is leading to terrible decisions. It's leading to political instability in Europe. It's leading to a worsening economic situation. The hardliners are absolutely wrong. They're destroying Ukraine and they're destabilizing the world. We need peace through negotiation. So let me stop there and turn it back over to you. Okay, thank, thank you very much. A big applause from the participants also here in presence for your uh, very important words about also this situation today. Uh, it is very difficult, so we need also this cooperation piece, and so we have to move in this direction. If you have, uh, I know you have, you have uh, not so much time, so please, uh, a couple of minutes. If you have, if you have uh, uh, there is one sh very quick question, okay, for uh, from uh, uh, Alessio D'Amato. So this is, uh, Alessio is uh, online, so I ask him to Alessio to. Uh, jump in uh, so to make this question. So for last your uh, three minutes, okay? Can, can you hear me? I hear you well, Alessio. Thank you. Great. It's a, a honor to be able to ask a question and uh, I join the congratulations for this indeed thought-provoking uh, uh, speech. Uh, I'm not talk. I'm not going to talk about the crisis uh, I'm uh, going to talk about uh, the, uh, the problems that you addressed uh, for the transition. And uh, one thing I was wondering, uh, and that, that I didn't hear mentioned uh, a lot so far, is uh, a, a thing that it may be, at least according to me, complementary to all the big steps that you suggested are needed, which is... Uh, changes on the consumer side. And when I talk about consumer side, I talk about preferences. Uh, so I was wondering, and I would really be happy to have your view on uh, what is the potential role, especially in the long run, that uh, may be played by behavioral intervention and policies that drive 
preferences of consumers towards the transition. Yeah, thanks a lot, and thanks again for your speech. Yeah, well, th thank you. And for your kindness. Thanks. <laughs> th th thanks a lot. Uh, there are some areas where uh, direct behaviors absolutely matter uh, in, in important ways. Perhaps a diet will prove to be one of them because uh, the issue of uh, how we eat uh, has such profound implications for agriculture, which has such profound implications for uh, at least a third of uh, the emissions issues and m much more than half of the land use crisis. Uh, th the way we uh, use uh, uh, resources in our daily lives, uh, of course, uh, recycling, uh, waste management, the ways that we uh, go to work, whether it's by Zoom uh, or uh, by car uh, or uh, by walking and bicycling matter. Our lives will change a lot as they have in the last three years. In the digital age, uh, in uh, a green age, and so public awareness, understanding, participation, uh, as your colleague uh, Leonardo Bacchetti says, voting with the wallet, uh, this is all uh, very important, I think, an additional piece. Certain things, I think, are less directly relevant. For example, I don't pay too much attention, and if I weren't studying, it would have no idea. When I turn on the light switch, how my electricity uh, is produced and where it comes from, uh, and uh, the electrification of the economy is less a behavioral issue than it is a systems issue behind the wall. Uh, so we don't see it. Uh, we need broad public acceptance. Behavior matters. Do, do people accept a wind turbine? Do they accept an over, overhead uh, uh, power line? Uh, so in, in a way, one could say that even in an area such as uh, the power sector transformation, there are behaviors that implicitly matter, acceptability of the green technologies, uh, acceptability of the land use uh, change patterns, uh, acceptability of uh, transmission lines uh, or and, and so forth. I think the bottom line, though, that is a general point of your question is we, we need and we believe in uh, citizens participating, understanding, and uh, choosing for the common good as part of any decent society. So this philosophically uh, comes back to the long debate in economics, really between Adam Smith and Genovese uh, in the late, 19, uh, late 18th century. Smith talked about an invisible hand. Genovese talked about uh, economia civile, uh, a civil economy of decency. Uh, I am on the civil economy side that we better have people that understand, appreciate, and participate in the transition, whether as consumers or as citizens, but not simply as agents in the market, uh, because there are too many 
places where good citizenry or responsible personal behavior are part of the overall solutions. And when we have societies where people don't take any kind of responsibility for the common good because it's been written out of the the, the mindset and the language, and that's true in the United States where we don't even have a concept of the common good anymore, it's extraordinarily difficult to make these changes. So even in the technical areas, we need public awareness and acceptability. And in some areas, we need direct personal behavioral change. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Alessio. Now, uh, last uh, seconds after I leave you <laughs> free or so. Um, uh, before leaving you, uh, there is uh, one thing that uh, uh, Roberto de Miranda would like to say to you very quick, and after we'll, uh, we conclude, and after okay. we'll go to the, the next uh, uh, panelist. Okay, leave you before. <clears throat> thank you, Sergio. Thank you, Professor. I'm a 2011 MBA student in Colombia, so it's, it's an honor to be a speaker today Hello. in the same panel as you. <laughs> and even if I'm 1,000 notches below you in terms of standing and credibility. I'm, I just want to thank you for your speech because I love two things. The correlation that you mentioned between climate and geopolitics is fundamental if we want to, to really... Uh, have a net zero emission economy to be, that, that there is peace in the world. And most of all, I love the, the vision and the, um, the very um, rational view that you have about the Ukraine-Russia war. And um, you, you, you said something that a lot of people, especially in the media here, are afraid to say. And um, trust me, it's like that. And um, now, when I will, when I will say when I will have to say something about this, I, I will quote Professor Sachs. So I'm, I'm sure that nobody will will go against me. So thank you very much, Professor. Let let, let me thank you. Uh, it it is, by the way, just to add a word. It, it is surprising and distressing how uh, how poor our public. Uh, awareness and debate around the war has been. Uh, I, I, I write uh, hundreds of op-eds uh, over the years, and suddenly I could not get them placed in uh, mainstream uh, media, uh, which rejected any kind of discussion that did not start with the 10 uh, repeat uh, statements about Putin's evil, uh, but instead tried to give some context to the war. I used to write for Project Syndicate uh, and was the most uh, uh, published author of Project, Project Syndicate, 360 uh, articles over 30 years. I ended up uh, quitting Project Syndicate a couple of months ago because they would not run pieces of mine that explain the context of the war, the background, the history, uh, the provocations on the U.S. side, the role of the United States uh, in the Maidan in 2014, which overthrew the pro-Russian president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych. I, I happened to be in Kiev, in Kiev, uh, days after the Maidan, and I, I know the role the United States played and how it was viewed as a U.S.-led overthrow by Putin. Uh, 
you know, I don't want to say everything Putin uh, thinks is right, but I also want to say that not everything he thinks is wrong. There's a history to this that goes back 30 years. And the United States stopped allowing discussion of it. Truly, my hope was that Schultz, Macron, uh, and Draghi, uh, three people I know well, like very much, uh, I was uh, Mario Draghi's, I was a younger classmate, but I was in school uh, with him, uh, and um, we go back a long time. I like him enormously. I think he's incredibly talented. But I wanted to hear the European voice more strongly. And just to tell you, in 2008, when George W. Bush Jr., one of our worst presidents in modern history, uh, and there have been many lousy ones. So to say one of the worst uh, is saying really something. But when George W. Bush Jr. proposed NATO enlargement to Ukraine and to Georgia, European leaders were aghast. They told him privately, no, you can't do this. This is dangerous. This is a provocation. But they could not find a public voice. They're too scared, too dependent on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, too something to speak what they say privately, publicly. This is very worrisome because we need Europe. We need Europe with a strategic autonomy, with a clear view. Europe's values are the best values in the world, I can tell you, because I do all sorts of comparative work. Europe ranks highest on happiness, highest on quality of governance, highest on sustainable development. The United States way down the list. And yet the U.S. is the military alliance leader and dictates what's acceptable and not. Now, speaking very frankly, the biggest shock to me this year is the position of the Greens in Germany. It's unrecognizable to me how aggressive the Greens are in warmongering. Maybe they have no idea of what Hans-Dietrich Genscher said to Gorbachev in 1990, how Germany promised no NATO enlargement. And not incidentally, but explicitly. And I, I was there, I tell you. I was in Russia and Soviet Union in those days. NATO enlargement was taken off the table. But the Greens in Germany are so aggressive right now against Putin. And I heard it just now. I spoke to the G20 foreign ministers last week. Oh, the, the, the vitriol was the opposite of diplomacy. So please be Europe. That's my big plea, because the United States won't find its way out of this maze. We need Europe to do so. Europe has the biggest stakes with this deepening economic crisis, it makes sense for Europe to push the two parties, actually it's three, it's the U.S., Ukraine, and Russia, to a negotiated outcome. And uh, I, I really, I thank you for your comment and really hope that we can raise our voices to help make that happen very soon for Ukraine's sake, first of all, by the way. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time, uh, valuable time. It was very, it was very honor. We are here in order to discuss all of this. Thank you.